You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Esther chapter 5. Before we get started here, I just want to commend uh, Brother Yoda this morning on 100 verses and 45 minutes. I think that might be the most efficient sermon I've ever heard. I can promise you I will not beat that. I <laughs> uh, really enjoyed hearing on just the concept of Christ as the light of the world. Uh, great sermon. really appreciate that this morning. Uh, we're here in Esther chapter 5, and uh, I don't know about you, but I love the book of Esther for, for a number of reasons. Number one, the way it reads as a narrative, it's very easy to follow along with it, but also because this may shock you, but I am not the sharpest tool in the shed. And as I read this chapter, there were truths that just jumped out to me that I thought so easily apply to all of us. Uh, and as we go through this passage, hopefully you'll see that. Uh, so we're in Esther chapter five this evening, and we'll begin by looking at verse number 1. Verse number 1, Esther chapter 5 says this, Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. This evening, for a few minutes, I'm talking about this this concept of stepping up. This evening, we're going to talk about stepping up in restrained seasons. Stepping up in restrained seasons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this evening, Lord. God, I thank you for your word, Lord, and your goodness. And Lord, I thank you for the example we see here of Esther. Lord, we know she was not perfect, and as we've discussed many times already, she and Mordecai both made mistakes in their lives, and yet, Lord, what an encouragement it is to us that you can take normal, broken people and accomplish your will and purpose through them. And God, as we discuss the restrained seasons and how to, Lord, be effective for you this evening, God, I pray that you would, Lord, open each one of our hearts and minds and areas that perhaps we need to grow in, myself included. God, that you would take this sermon this evening, plant it in our hearts, Lord, and help it to not just go into our ears, Lord, but to into our heart, and that through that it would go into our actions as well. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Timing is everything. You ever heard a quote like that, something about the importance of timing? Timing is absolutely everything. For those of you that bake, a cake, for instance, or even cookies, you know that timing is everything. You wait too long and those cookies are burnt. You don't, go, you don't bake them long enough and you know, they're kind of soggy in the middle. Timing is important. When you're playing a musical instrument or singing, timing is something that is, is a very important thing. When you're applauding at an event, timing is important, right? You ever hear that one person that doesn't clap at the same time as everybody else? Or you have those couple of teenagers that think they're going to be funny and be the last one to clap? Timing is important. But if you don't believe that's true, here is one word that will convince you that timing is important, and the word is this, popcorn. All right, 
I believe that studies have shown that there's exactly five nanoseconds between a perfect bowl of popcorn and that terrible smell of popcorn death that fills a home right away. I don't know if you've ever burned popcorn before, but it seems like there's just that instant moment it goes from perfect popcorn to terrible mess and horrible smell inside the entire house. And timing is something that's important. It's something all of us realize is important, but as we follow the narrative of Esther here, she shows us the importance of timing and restraint as well. She knows how, how to, uh, he shows us here how to step up during restrained seasons. For those who perhaps haven't followed along through um, the entire book of Esther where we're at so far, or perhaps um, we've forgotten a little bit here, just to review Esther's situation, you remember Esther wins, we'll call it the Miss Persia contest, and becomes the queen uh, here uh, to King Artaxerxes, King Xerxes here, and becomes the queen here, but not too long after that, there's a man that's brought in the situation by the name of Haman, a very evil man we know, and this man, Haman, has a lot of power, the second in command. Pretty much, he has the authority of the king himself. And so he's the second in command, has a lot going for him, and the problem is that this man, Haman, has a hatred for the Jewish people. And the story goes, as we remember, when Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman, Haman decides not only to get rid of Mordecai, don't just stop there with one person, but instead to destroy the entire group of Jews. And so Haman gets this idea to have this done, and the king approves Haman's plan, puts the seal on it, says it's ready to go, and the edict for the elimination is announced for these Jews. And after that takes place, Mordecai sends word to Esther here, telling her what is going to take place and how she needs to stop it. And of course, we know Esther sends back word that, that she hasn't had a chance to talk to the king in over a month. You know, they, they, the king hasn't requested her presence at all. And Mordecai tells her this, if you don't stand up and fight, if you don't stand up for what needs to be said, someone else will come along and deliver us. But perhaps you were given for such a time as this. And so at the end of chapter 4, Esther says this. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so this is where we pick up our story for today. She's told these people, hey, pray and fast for three days. My people here will do the same thing. And we pick it up right here. Between chapters 4 and chapters 5, there's this dramatic pause, so to speak. Between these two chapters, we're left in suspense as we're not told anything that goes on during these three days of fasting and praying. We see in chapter 4 to fast and pray, and then we open up here in chapter 5 to three days later. And this pause, I believe, represents a silent yet very powerful interlude during which Esther drew the source of her strength. Even though God was silent during these three days, we can trust that he was at work nonetheless. Even though there's nothing said here of those three days, and during a waiting period, I think all of us perhaps have faced in our life, God is not only working in our hearts, he's working in others' hearts as well. Reminds me of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31 where, Christ says, where it says this, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
And what I want to do is start by encouraging with this. When you find yourself in one of those interlude periods of your life, when we need to wait upon the Lord for wisdom, for strength, for direction, we should ask others to fast and pray for us. There's power in God, and then we should give it over to God and wait with a listening ear. And so that is where we jump into Esther chapter 5. I read the first few verses here there, and then verse 3 says, Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. Verse 4 says, And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee, and what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and, request, and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said." This is really quite amazing here as we read this passage. I believe some people would perhaps criticize Esther and her response right here for not pleading her case then and there when she comes before the king, but she's wise. And as we'll see here, Esther has moved a, a certain irony that would later take place that wouldn't have happened. And we have King Xerxes in, our, in all of our lives, right? We see Esther come before the king knowing that she's not allowed to. And we see here to begin with that she knows if she comes before the king, if, she does, if the king does not raise or lower his scepter to her, it's instant death. And yet she comes courageously. And as she comes before the king, we see this first thing here, restrained speech. Restrained speech. Speech, stepping up in a, in a strange season, the importance of restrained speech. Proverbs 21 1 says this The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Ecclesiastes 3 says this There is a time to every purpose under heaven, under heaven, a time to keep peace and a time to speak. And we see Esther come before the king, and the king says, what do you want? I'll give you all the way up to half of the kingdom. The idea was this. The sky is the limit for you, Esther. Whatever you desire, I will make it happen up to half of the kingdom. And at this moment, you think, all right, let him have it. Tell what Haman's plan is and get this over with. Fix the whole situation. And yet, she doesn't do that at all. She practices restrained speech here. This was a moment to be silent, but not for long. A moment to be silent, but not for long. So Esther comes before her. We see her persistence here, number one. In verse one, it says, Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel. What significance does this reveal, I think, here? It says, It came to pass on the third day. In the previous chapter, I mentioned we discovered that Esther had, and Mordecai had committed to doing what? Praying. You pray and fast for three days. My, me and my people here will pray and fast for three days. Esther had been faithful to fulfill her obligation. She didn't jump the gun in the midst of these three days. She continued to fast and to pray for these three days. And she knew the importance of praying and fasting prior to entering into the king's presence. She knew she needed the help of the Lord here. 
She knew she could not do it on her own, and she needed the Lord's help in this situation. Now, I think this serves as a tremendous challenge for every single one of us, myself included. And I fear often we become too casual and complacent with our prayers. Now, God is our Heavenly Father, and I believe we can call Him Abba, Daddy. And yet, if we're, if we're honest, how many times do we take prayer for granted and, so to speak, don't take advantage of it? Something that we can do so easily, so often, whenever we desire, and yet it's just talking to us instead of realizing who we are talking to. Esther possessed this great importance and urgency regarding prayer. I think it'd be good for all of us to getting back to some fasting and prayer. Now, I know it's not something we practice very often. I remember one summer when I was in college, I traveled with the college and we would do vacation Bible schools at different, um, different all over the country. And so two people would travel together and we'd do vacation Bible schools for kids in the morning, usually and teens at night. And I remember we were in Minnesota one week and uh, we were traveling with these two ladies going out and handing out some flyers for vacation Bible school. And they were talking about you know, their prayer and fasting. And the lady pretty much said, yeah, it's a great weight loss plan. And it probably is a great weight loss plan, but I can encourage you, fasting isn't for the weight loss. I mean, if you want to do it, and that's a bonus for it, but the idea is of fasting is taking a time to pull back from something that distracts you and use that time to focus on God. I don't know about you, but I'll be honest, I don't know when the last time I fasted was. Maybe the last time Ms. Brandy wasn't home and I had to cook, that was probably the last time I fasted. Um, but so often, we have so much power that is accessible to us, and we just leave it there. And fasting and prayer, as Esther saw here, was something great and important. We see her, pre her preparation here as well. It says, Now it came to pass that she put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house against the king's house here. Esther made the necessary preparations to enter the king's presence. She made sure to be adorned in royal apparel. If she was going to stand before the king, she wanted to be acceptable in his sight. She put all she had into what she was doing. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like painting. Anybody in here that enjoy painting houses at all? Anybody in here? Not, maybe you do a little bit. The thing that I hate about painting is the preparation. The painting's not the bad part, right? It's taping everything off and moving everything and getting it all prepared. I mean, once you do that part, the painting really is somewhat of a breeze. It's the preparation that drives me crazy. It's the preparation that takes forever. You think about professional athletes. The worst part isn't the game. It's all the preparation and time that goes into it. You know, when it comes to serving the Lord faithfully, preparation is the key. When it comes time to enter into the king's presence, whether it be in prayer or some other method when we're reading the word of God, it's about preparation. You know, we have discipleship groups going on right now, right? And we have a chapter of scripture to read each day, and we write down the verse that sticks out to us, a couple of verses, and we explain it, and we apply it, and we have a response for it. But how many times, myself included, do I get into the word of God, and I have no preparation whatsoever? I've not taken time to ask God to prepare my heart. It's just, well, I've got to get this off my list today. And we see Esther here prepared for what she's about to go into. We see her preparation here. We see her presence. We see her presence. She knew she needed to meet with the king, and she wasn't going to waste her time with other people. Look down at verse number three and four now. It says, Then the king said unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. 
And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. And so the king says, What is it that you want? He says, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what's thy request? It shall be even given to the half of the kingdom. And Esther here is very wise. She isn't in a hurry. Why? Because she's waiting on the Lord to do the work. She knows that she cannot do it, and so she's waiting on the Lord. She's waiting for the right time and the right words. Remember I told you Proverbs 25, 11 says this, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Esther responds in verse 4 by saying, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. Let me ask you this question. How would you feel at this moment if you were Esther? Put your feet right where she is. She comes to the king not knowing how he's going to respond to her appearance there. Hey, there's a chance that I may die if he doesn't lower his scepter to me in this moment. And he had not only extended the golden scepter, but he, so to speak, offers her this blank check. Whatever you want, I'll take care of it. It's done. How would you have responded to those developments? What would have been your request? Would you have quickly blurted out, hey, you know, this is what, exactly what I need. Go ahead and take care of it now. Would you have brought down the roof on Haman? Would you have, you know, hey, Haman is this terrible person. He wants to kill all the Jews. He's pretty much Hitler before Hitler came along. You need to get rid of him and kill this guy. But that's not what Esther does at all. And sometimes we, we wonder, why didn't she? But she was a wise woman here. She was being guided by God because she had been waiting on God. She had spent that three days in prayer and fasting and knew that God was in control. So instead of blurting out the first thing that came to mind and the thing that she thought was best, she restrains her speech. And as I said in the beginning, I am not the sharpest tool in the shed. But as I read this, I thought to myself, how many times do my words come before my brain thinks. How many times do I say something and think to myself, man, I should have waited a couple more minutes before I thought that. We were joking around in, in discipleship groups this morning. How many times have I said something to my wife and thought, oh man, I'm just going to shut up before I dig a deeper hole. And Esther here practices restrained speech and a desire to serve God. The first one to speak doesn't always win. We were playing a couple weeks ago on a Saturday night. We had played a game in, uh, we had a, a teen, a game night, and uh, we had done Wheel of Fortune. I'm not sure if some of you like Wheel of Fortune at all. Um, and we did these rounds, they're, they're called toss up rounds. And maybe if you watch it at all, it's where they put up the board and they begin to put the letters on, and pretty much the first one to blurt out the answer wins. You know, kind of that, you know, fastest, loudest one wins. How many times do we? treat our life and our situations the same way. Hey, the first one to yell out wins. First one, you know, the person that's the loudest wins. Esther here, knowing that God is in control, says, now is not the time. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to trust the Lord. And how many times in situations that are difficult in our lives do we need to stop for a moment, step back, and think before we speak, give it over to God before we give an answer? Right here, Xerxes says, what is your request? I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, not what we would think, she says. But she says, hey, how, how about you come to 
a banquet. Sometimes we get in a hurry when we're not waiting on God and when we're not in tune with God. It's easy to jump ahead of God and do rash things. We can, so to speak, shoot from the hip or, or run off at the mouth and cause ourselves all kinds of trouble. And look here at how Esther responds. It says, And Esther answered, If it seemed good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. I don't know about you, but when I read that request, I was surprised. Like, man, if that was me, like I said, I would have said something totally different. So while Esther's fasting and praying, I believe God was already filling her heart with a plan. While, God, while, while, while Esther and her handmaidens and Mordecai and the Jews are praying, God is already preparing her for this. Give a banquet. Invite Haman. Here's the best way to extend the invitation. And it even appears that Esther even made preparations for the banquet while she was fasting and praying. Esther prepared for the banquet because she trusted that God could do the improbable and even the impossible here. And did you notice how respectfully she spoke to the king? If it pleases the king. And so in the midst of a difficult situation with a man that is about to wipe out her entire uh, heritage, she still knows how to show grace and composure. It's not, hey, you're doing some really stupid things. You need to fix this. But she says, if it pleases the king. So while maintaining this great grace and composure, Esther simply says, I've planned a banquet, and I'd love to have for you and Haman to attend. So how did the king respond to this invitation? He says, hey, great, banquets are my thing. If you remember back in the beginning of Esther, they had another banquet, didn't, didn't they? It didn't go so well for King Xerxes. And I believe Esther, in her wisdom and in God's wisdom, knew exactly what Haman and exactly what King Xerxes loved to do. And so this played right into this plan so well. Instead of jumping a gun and saying, hey, these are what needs to be fixed, come to this banquet. Now, it may be perhaps that she brought him to the banquet to think, maybe he needs to be reminded of his love for me. After all, he hasn't called for me in over 30 days. So he needs to be reminded about how wonderful I am and kind of work on him a little bit. But we see this request to come to the banquet. So like, okay, this is working. This is great. He'll come to the banquet and, you know, Haman's going to be there, and then she's going to slam on him. Like, you know, he's going to be right there, and he's going to say, hey, this is the man, kind of the, that, I, that moment, and it's, it's going to finish this whole thing. You know, curtain falls, and everything's done. But the story continues in verse 5. It says, Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And I think at this moment, Esther must have been marveling at what God was doing. She could have lost her head, but here she sat having a banquet with her husband, the king, and this enemy, Haman, the enemy of her people here. And just to see how God is orchestrating things exactly according to plan. Let's read verse 6 now. It says, And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then Esther, and then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is. So here it comes, verse 8. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king has said. So once they're enjoying the banquet here, the king restates his question. What exactly is it 
that you want. Now, he knows it must be something important, right? Because Esther had risked her life to come before him and make this request here. And she never would have done that if it wasn't for a good reason here. So Esther could have brought the issue up then. But for some reason, she sensed that God wanted another day of preparation. And we'll see real soon, as we'll learn, God's timing requires this one more day. And so Esther replies, there's something important I want to say to you. But I want, you to, tell, I want to tell you tomorrow at another banquet that I want to have with you and Haman. And once again, notice how formally and respectfully she addresses her husband, the king, here. If it pleases the king, sitting beside the man that wants to wipe out her, her entire, uh, gen- her entire uh, background and her entire heritage, she continues to show this grace and composure and says, I'll tell you tomorrow at another banquet. And so as we see here over and over and over, what we would consider an opportunity to slam Haman and finish the whole story, and we, she, she, we see she shows restraint. That was like a tongue twister right there with Sally selling seashores by the seashell, I think. We see that she shows restraint here, restrained speech. And once again, I always come back and back to this. How often would the situations we're in Would God solve them if we would just restrain ourselves from jumping, jumping to conclusions, trying to get the first strike in, and saying, Lord, prepare my heart. Help me to see it through your perspective. When things are difficult, help me not to just jump to conclusions and be the first one to speak, but help me to trust in you. And so we see here restrained speech. But let's read verse number 9 says, then went Haman forth that day, joyful with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. We see number two here, restrained favor. Restrained favor. Haman leaves this banquet all kinds of excited. So we see him walking out of the palace. He's kind of on cloud nine right now. He thinks he's someone super special. He just had this private dinner with the king and the queen by the queen's special request. She wants to have another private dinner with him tomorrow. And he's as excited as can be. He probably thinks, you know, hey, my star's on the rise. The sky's the limit, man. I'm, I'm getting better and better every single day. I'm, I haven't even reached my peak yet. But as he walks out of the palace, bursting with pride on this big ego trip of how amazing he is, he bumps into... Mordecai, the Jew who will not show him any respect. And again, Haman goes from cloud nine, all excited, all, you know, happy to being furious. But he bit his tongue and headed for home to revel in his glory. Look at verse number 10. So he sees Mordecai, he's upset, doesn't do anything. Says verse 10, nevertheless, Haman refrained himself And when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. You know, all bragging here. And verse 12 says, Haman said, moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king under the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. People like Haman can really drive us crazy. You know anyone like this? We call braggarts. You know, if you were to listen to someone that's a braggart that's like this Haman here, 
they just go on, you know, kind of all talking about themselves. They talk about, you know, the important people they know and the places they vacation and the money they spend and how amazing they are. And Haman tells them what he's worth and how many children he has and all these amazing things. And most importantly, his special relationship with the king and queen. Hey, don't you know how amazing I am here and how honored she was to have him there at the banquet with them? Now, you would think that Haman would be satisfied with all this glory, wealth, and power, right? But he's not. He's second in command. He's got the king's authority behind him. Uh, he's got all these sons and all this wealth. But verse 13 says this, Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So after listening to all of this, Hey, I've got all these things, and I've got this money, and I've got this wealth, and I've got this power, all these things, I'm still not happy because there's, there's this man by the name of Mordecai that just drives me bonkers, will not give me any respect at all. So after listening to all this, Haman's wife and friends pretty much say, hey, how about you have some gallows built 75 feet high? The Bible says 50 cubits, 75 feet high. In the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged. You know, and then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. So, hey, how about in the morning you talk to the king and say, hey, I've got these gallows being built. I'd like to have Mordecai hanged because he doesn't show me any respect. That way you can have him hanged. Then they, that evening you can go to the meal and you can be a happy man. And this was the suggestion that's given to him. What's amazing to me is, you know, hey, why wait for the edict to be put into effect where they kill all the Jews? Just take care of this one right now. They were built 75 feet high, seven and a half stories. I mean, talk about overkill here. Haman is all about making a display here of his hatred for Mordecai. Now, what's interesting is as I began to read about this, these gallows that they're talking about, gallows were often different from what we picture now, kind of the, the beam up in the air and then the hangman picture here with the noose. Many times gallows and hangings were actually more of a, a, a pole and an impaling. Um, and so what a terrible way for someone to go, and yet we just see here how much hatred Haman has for this man, and is totally controlling him here. So Haman goes to sleep that night listening to the, to the, the idea of those, that pound and that gallows being built outside, probably thinking, ah, it's going to be a good day tomorrow because Mordecai, I'm going to be done with him, and goes to sleep well. But we see here, Verse number 14, Then said Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king, that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou and merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. And so in this chapter, what I love and hate at the same time is it's a big cliffhanger, right? We see Haman have this meal, and we see this second banquet that's coming up. And this entire time, we see Esther restrain her speech. I'm going to wait on God's timing. And I'm not going to just throw out and talk about what, what I think and what, my, what comes to my flesh immediately. I'm going to restrain myself and trust in God. We, sure he, we see her even showing favor here to where Haman thinks, she likes me. She, 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 she's going to help me. And I think Esther knew everything that Haman had planned, and yet... She, if I could put it this way, killed him with kindness. Now, we'll see later on. That means even more than I'm saying now. Um, 
But her whole approach to this restrained season in her life and this difficult trial in her life and the life of the Jews here wasn't to lash out and to strike first. It was to speak wisely. It was to trust in God. It was even to show grace and respect to those that had no intention of helping them, but instead harming them. And Esther gives us a great example of how we are to behave when the world lines up against us. You don't have to look around very much, right, to see that we live in a restrained season, don't we? We're often sharing the gospel is considered hate speech. Or we see people going to prison for sharing the gospel out on the street. Where to think that God's word is truth and everything else is not is considered a hate crime. And there's more and more persecution. Now, I will say in the United States, we don't face near as much persecution as many people in the world do. And honestly, sometimes we have it very easy. But we have to be wise about how we share the gospel. We have to be wise about how we react to the way the world reacts to us. And here we see Esther in the midst of this restrained season where things are not going perhaps how we would like them to go or even how she would like them to go. And she learns to trust in the Lord here. And we see at the end of this chapter, Haman preparing to wipe out Mordecai and then shortly after that, the rest of the Jews. And I want to offer a few things for us to think about and apply to our lives from this part of this narrative of Esther. First of all, when we're facing a big decision or a challenging situation, we should wait on the Lord before proceeding. Waiting is a hard game, isn't it? Um, in every area. Waiting for something to happen is probably the hardest thing to do. Because you, want, you don't know what's coming next. Now, we read in Esther chapter 5 here, and we can read the rest of the story, right? Hey, we know this is going to happen. We know this is going to work out for them. It's all going to be okay. But Esther didn't know that. Mordecai didn't know that. I mean, they trusted in the Lord, but they didn't have the rest of the story. And yet they learned to wait on God even when they didn't know what was next. And many times we jump into situations and make decisions quickly instead of waiting on God. We should spend some time in prayer, and we might also add some fasting as well. We should be looking to the Lord and listening for the prompting of the Holy Spirit, which may come from a number of different directions, whether it's a wise individual or scripture or opening and closing of doors. And as we wait on God, here's something that's amazing. God works on us during that time as well. Not just showing us the answer or the direction, but he works in our lives as well to help change us. Waiting on God is so important. God even works on others in that time. One of the biggest mistakes we can make is being in a hurry and rushing ahead of God. I remember when I was a kid, uh, we lived at the top of kind of a, a road that went down. It's kind of a, a big hill. And I remember one day uh, taking my brother's bicycle. I don't think I was trying to like steal it or anything. I don't remember exactly. But I remember taking his bicycle and I was going to ride it down the hill. And there's kind of a, a road that turns. And I remember starting to go down the hill. And it was a pretty good size hill, so we we're picking up speed. And uh, something, you know, it's no big deal because I've got brakes in this bike, right? Wrong. So I'm squeezing the brake handle and nothing's happening at all. And I decided to make a rash decision. I decided why wait for, you know, because the road eventually got flat and you'd eventually slow down, right? I decided why wait for it to slow down? How about I hop off and it'll slow down a lot quicker, right? 
And I thought, you know, that was a dumb decision, number one. But I thought, you know what? I'll hop off and be fine, but I don't want the bike to get hurt. So instead of just hopping off, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hop off and I'm going to stop the bike with me. And obviously it was a split-second decision with an IQ of seven. Um, and I remember jumping off of that bike, and I think that was the last thing I remember other than waking up covered in, like, gravel and everything. Rash decisions lead us to those results, don't they? Making that split decision leads us to those results. Now, sometimes split decisions need to be made, right? Sometimes that, that is the case, absolutely. But are we prepared for when those times come along? Are we in the Word of God? Have we spent time in prayer? And so when that momentary, that quick split decision comes along, we're prepared for it. Our heart is prepared for it. We're in tune with God, so to speak, because we know what He desires. Patience is so key in making decisions wisely. Second, whenever we're facing obstacles or evil that seems insurmountable, don't lose hope. When we think about the obstacle and evil that Esther faced here, it would have been easy to give up, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm just a teenager, maybe 20-something-year-old girl. King Xerxes is probably the most powerful man in the world. Haman, the one that wants to destroy the Jews, the second most powerful person. There didn't seem to be any chance of winning here at all. It would have been easy to think that all seemed lost and that nothing could be done. But we have to remember that when God is involved, even when all seems lost, it's not. Even when it seems like there's no possible good outcome, the Lord's still in control and can take it and make something great of it. It would have been easy to think that no one seemed to care here, especially God, who was what seems like very silent in this whole book. But we have to remember that when no one seems to care or notice, God always does both. When no one seems to care or notice, God always does both. God notices and God cares. Nothing escapes God notice, God's notice, and God cares about everything that is happening to us. When God seems absent and silent, that doesn't mean he isn't present and isn't working. In Esther's situation, it would also have been easy to think that everything was going great for her enemies, right? I mean, they seem to be building this massive army. Haman seems to be getting everything that he wants. Xerxes seems to be getting everything that he wants. It would have been easy to think, hey, they're winning right here. Haman's gotten a promotion. Haman has the king's authority. Everything seemed to be going great for him. And that's what it looked like to Esther, and that's what it looked like to Haman as well. But we have to remember that when everything seems great for our enemies, it's not. Closely tied with this last point is that when we face obstacles and evil like Esther did, it's easy to think that there's no justice. I mean, we can look at the world around us, right, and, and see that there is a lacking in justice. And the justice system, how many times it fails? Because, number one, it's fallen men. But we can think that there's none. There's certainly a lot of injustice in this world, but the Bible tells us that God is just, and then in the end, God will dispense justice. And we can count on that promise every single time. God will work all things together for good. God will reward the faithful and will punish the disobedient. So we have to patiently wait upon the Lord. And finally, from Esther, we learn that after waiting on the Lord and maintaining our hope through faith, we have to take a stand. 
Taking our stand may include expressing our faith and trust in God. Taking our stand might include making a decision and charting a course. Taking our stand may include opposing evil ideas or evil behaviors or evil uh, opinions or an evil person even. But as we take our stand, whatever it might be, we can trust in God's promise that he'll be with us. And that is what kept Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people going was knowing that God was in control. And what seemed like a hopeless situation, they stood having confidence in him. As Esther approaches the king, wondering if that scepter is going to be lowered to her, she had full confidence in God himself. And so she waited upon his timing. She waited upon his timing. And so my question is, what stand is God asking you to take? In this restrained season where sometimes the world is opposed to us and seems like things aren't going very well for Christians, what stand is God asking you to take? And with God's help, may all of us take the stands that God calls us to take in restrained seasons by having restrained speech, speaking wisely and waiting for the Lord's answer in situations, but also in restrained favor. We can still show respect and grace to this world even when we disagree with them. Esther here is an example for us. She was not perfect, and yet we can see through her example here that if we allow God to work, that if we allow God to have his will and way, things will turn out as as he desires, and we can trust in him. I'm not going to say that God's will is always the safest, because we can all probably think of missionaries in here perhaps, or those that have given their life for the cause of Christ, but it's always the best place to be in God's will. And Esther here, in a restrained season, uses her speech wisely. Doesn't jump the gun, doesn't throw her opinions out, trusts the Lord with what he's going to do, and even shows favor to where Haman thinks, hey, things are going well. She likes me, the king likes me. I'm going to be a pretty happy guy here as Mordecai's hang tomorrow. And yet we see, and we'll see in the rest of this picture, that God has a different plan. And God is using Esther perfectly because of her willingness to step up in restrained seasons. So where do you feel restrained right now? Where you feel like, man, things aren't just aren't going the way I want them to be. It seems like the, the, the evil side, the bad side, the wrong opinion is winning. My question is this, have you taken time to pray and fast about it? Have you waited upon the Lord? Are you waiting upon the Lord? Don't give up and grow weary when it seems like the answer isn't quite there yet. Be patient. Some of us in here can give testimonies of people that we've prayed for to be saved for years and years. And just when we thought, kind of, hey, it's time to give up, nothing's happening, God does something. God is faithful all the time. God is good all the time. And so as we take our stand, we can trust God's promise to be with us and to help us through those restrained seasons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this evening for your word, Lord.